In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witness. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. Everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. They're going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Hi guys, welcome back to the Ensigns Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Blaine. And this week we sat down uh, well, metaphorically, I guess these days, with Stasia Littlefield to talk about therapy and story and why you need care for your inner places. And I'm laughing because we're at this interesting moment in time where we are more okay with these ideas than ever, and yet they're also still places of shame. Yes. We wanted to do this episode for a few reasons. We wanted to do this article in Volume 4 of Ensign's Magazine for a few reasons. One. You are a human being who has a heart. So you are like us in this lifelong journey of learning what that means and what you're supposed to do about it. So we wanted to ask a person who spends all her time in the territory of the heart, what are things that we should know? What are pieces that you're learning? What is helpful in stewarding this gift? And then the other one is to kind of jump into the topic of this cryptic profession therapy and how it works and who goes. Yeah, we were really intrigued by just the moment in time that this episode's coming out as we're in the midst of some return to normalcy, some change that's going to be having rippling effects for several years now, some ways that we medicate and some ways that we feel vulnerable, young, alone coming to the surface. So we're at a really unique point in time as well to to have the conversation of how are you going to be dealing with some of those deeper things that have gotten stirred up over the last couple of months. I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Stacia, thank you for coming again onto the Ansons podcast. Oh, my pleasure. I love you guys. And I'm really excited about this conversation. So are we. And this is actually the first time you've been introduced. So in the last episode that you were on, people aren't going to know it was you, but they might like work it out backwards. Mm. And oh, that's fun. I don't know if by the time this airs, if volume four will be out or not, but I think people are going to begin connecting the dots between the article you wrote for volume four, your name here on the podcast, and certainly the topic connects. But there's also just part of my heart for us as we are uh, hoping during this recording that when this releases, the limitations that have been placed on us as a culture will be lifting. So we're going to find ourselves mm. hopefully in a state of a return to some freedoms that we had, but some things will probably have been stirred up for a lot of people over the last several months. And so yeah. my heart for everybody just goes to, this is a moment to actually bring more care rather than to go, okay, everything's back to normal. Now we can just mm. mm-hmm. hop, skip and be grateful that we don't have to wear masks anymore. <laughs> That's why I'm happy to be having this conversation with you today and to be going into some of the stuff we're talking about. Where I would love to begin this conversation is what made you curious about the life of the heart? I'm 
a little concerned that that might be like you were born into a world of relational beings. <laughs> yeah. You are a therapist. Would you just take us into how did you decide that you wanted to pursue therapy as a career path? Great question. I could go so many different places with it. I think the truest one really is I was born into the fallen earth and um, have always really been a feeler and picking up on others' emotions as far back as I could remember. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think looking back at my life, God really has molded the shape of it and used so many life circumstances to give me his heart for people and for healing and to see how powerful it is to one, be a witness to his work in that, and then also to come alongside with him with the work that he's doing in others. But it also wasn't just this clear path of, you know, when I was seven, eight, I want to be a therapist. No, I think I wanted to be either an astronaut or ballerina. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That checks out. Right. It's kind of funny because in college, I was fascinated by all the psychology counseling courses, but I was also a music major, love music, teaching music, piano, all those things. And so I almost did a double major, but ended up going a different way, partly because there were just so many credits with music. And my thought process was, well, I think counseling is really cool, but it is so much school. I couldn't just graduate with my bachelor's and be done. I'd have to just go forever. And, you know, at 19, 20, I was like, oh, that's not, it's not how I want to spend my life. So fast forward a decade later, when I was 28, I <laughs> had this, uh, you could call it different things. I'd, a breakdown would probably describe it well, to be very honest, I was just really at a crossroads in my story and was really at a loss for where the next step was. And I had a conversation with my mentor. We were literally sitting at coffee and I was like, well, I could go back into teaching or I'd been in the nonprofit sector for a while and, but nothing had life. And it was more just how could I fill up the rest of my days? Like it wasn't a good space. And he just offhandedly mentioned, well, have you ever considered counseling? I think you'd make a great counselor. And it was like, it was one of those classic cliche light bulb moments. Hallelujah, of course. I was like, oh my gosh, why have I never seriously considered this before? I called my best friend. She was like, why have we never thought about this before? And then the process of the hindsight, like looking back at my story and seeing how God had so clearly in all these different ways pointed and prepared me and also kept me from being a therapist a decade earlier because I had to go through my own path of healing. And that's when I started grad school and started the path of becoming a therapist. I love the music part of the story, which I knew, but somehow kept forgetting. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The connections between those two are intriguing. Yeah, that would be a fun podcast. Definitely relates, I think. Mm -hmm. mm. There's sort of a fun practice with having kids around that is translating complex terms and professions for a three-year-old. Mm. I'm kind of curious if you had to describe to my three-year-old daughter <laughs> what a therapist is. Oh. What would you say? That's a great question. Um, I love your three-year-old. I probably would say to her that I get to sit with people and love them really well, how Jesus loves them to the best that I can, him through me. And we talk about things. We talk about things that maybe want to come up in other relationships. 
And with kids or teens, we play games and we get really comfortable with talking about what we're feeling, how we're hurting, how other people maybe have hurt us and how to receive God's love and other people's love. Could probably define it different ways, but that's it's, no, it's super off good. The cuff. <laughs> it's very kind, and, and my mind immediately goes to there's probably a lot of folks, uh, even still, like afraid of going those places that they actually mm. need the three year old description. Okay, this isn't scary. This is not something wrong with me. Yeah, yeah. There's something worth honoring and entering into, so that like. <laughs> Oh my goodness, to be playful, to be to create a safe place and then to go to where God is leading. You mentioned this the last decade had some preparing into it. And I think as my mind is actually going to the folks who are interested in becoming therapists themselves, mm. there feels like in order to do that, this is like this unspoken sort of criteria that you have to like be endowed with some supernatural <laughs> skill set or some supernatural wisdom. Like you have yeah. to become like Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. Like you have to like be a veteran and be yes, 60 and perfect. And yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And also perfect in your imperfections. Like it just Exactly. Yeah, cuz that's more perfect. <laughs> so as you are entering several years now into this, does it feel like you have to have all of the answers? Is there that pressure of like I got to be just endowed with Everything I need each time. Oh, that's such a great question. I think that's a lot of the internal work of therapists, especially young therapists in the field. And that's one of the things that with my grad program, um, and then also just through supervision, through consultation with other therapists, that is something that we talk about a lot. Um, I think for me personally, really, I would say for probably most anyone who goes into this field, you really care about people. You're not just in it for the money. <laughs> Sad surprise you are. <laughs> um, because the money's really, really because good. Because the money's right? amazing. Worth oh it. my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Mm, not not mm. so much, but you go in because you want to, I mean, you want to help people. You want to change the world. You want to, you know, and for me, I even personality wise, I'm very driven toward that too. Um, as far as perfectionism, or that's a lot of the internal work of my story as well, or being the oldest or wanting to take care of people. For people who are wanting to go into therapy, the stereotype, which is often very true, is people have been hurting from their past and they've wanted to help others with it. And so basically there's a lot of internal work that has to be done where it's like, okay, you do want to be excellent. You have all this training, you have supervision, consultation, you're not just going into it blind, but at the same time, you have to be comfortable with your own imperfections and with not having every single answer. And I think a lot of wisdom, there's all this information, but all the books in the world will not tell you what to say or what to do or what not to say or the space to leave or what to ask in the moment, every single client. So you you have to be, and this is one thing that has stretched me over the years, you have to be okay with ambiguity with the gray, Mm. with the mess of healing, because that will really translate as well to the people you're sending with, to your clients. They will be able to sense that. Like, are you so scared of making the wrong move or the wrong thing? Or are you comfortable with like, okay, we're, we're in this together. There is training, but no, I think that's a lot of the internal work of being okay with where you're at in your story, what you can offer and how you Mm. also are not God and you are not their savior. 
Woof. <laughs> yeah, that process is a work in process. I think every therapist, even seasoned therapists, if they're really honest, they have days where they feel like an amazing therapist and days where they don't. Or And you don't want to, another piece of the work is you can't have the verdict on yourself be how your clients are doing because sometimes you can be doing really amazing work, you and the client and it feels like things are being uncovered and it, it, it just gets messier before it gets like, oh, now I'm perfectly healed, you know? That's a piece of the process, yeah. What a complex profession. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything that directly interfaces with the human heart is going to have a level of messy before it gets better, it seems yes. like. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's actually like really dignifying too for the the client, for those folks who are going, there's a lot that's been uncovered, but it's messy. It's complicated. It seems like I don't have the answers for what's next. Mm-hmm. You're not going to someone that's somehow got you all figured out. It's not that you are then like put in your little bins. Like mm-hmm. that complexity is actually okay and appropriate and dignified. And it's just like that. It's it's going to be okay that you're not you're not the odd one out if things feel complicated or confusing in this moment. Yeah. And we talk a lot in therapy about, well, with therapists, about some of the most powerful moments in therapy are when you are really real with how the client is affecting you and bringing it, we call it the here and now, um, it really into the present. Um, and that can be used even to kind of call someone's bluff in the room to be like, I'm really experienced. Like you say that you're okay, or this area is all figured out or whatever, but I'm, I'm actually experiencing a lot of unsettledness about that. Are, are you, are you feeling, I just want to check in with you. Are you feeling that as well? And because so often what you, you will kind of mirror, pick up on some of that client. And so I think, especially when you're beginning therapy in grad school, doing internships, it's really distinguishing between, okay, is this my stuff or am I feeling the client stuff? And all of that can be brought into the room and be incredibly powerful, actually. And the client can feel really known. But it feels like a risk at first, I think, as a therapist. That makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. There was so much in the language that you just used that was actually black belt, even if it seemed simple, like Mm. feeling, moment, effect, And it makes me want to return to square one for a minute by way of orientation Mm. for our guys who, as Sam mentioned, may be coming out of a very tense moment and go, an introduction to the heart, 101, I'm intrigued by the things that a person ought to know about their internal life. Mm. And especially when many guys coming out of quarantine or at any other time in their life, when I begin conversations, and there are many counterexamples to this, and many very tuned in to their own internal life, tender men that I know. Mm. Mm -hmm. Additionally, and I more days than not am in this group, there are people who just go, how are you doing? Good. Feel a little funky. Can't quite figure out why, but good. Mm-hmm. If they give you that. <laughs> <laughs> if they can even say that, I feel a little funky. They're just like, I'm just mad. You're like, oh, okay. 
Right. I'm mad mm. or don't talk mm. to me. Yeah. Or if you're me, like, fine. I think. Mm-hmm. This big middle territory where there's no words besides fine. And so the question is, what are some of the things that you would want to tell a person about their heart or having a heart as it relates to just being a person? Mm. I think the first thing is to have grace and compassion if this is really hard for you. I think there is something about different people's makeup where some, these are the waters that people swim in all the time. And then there's that stewardship and coming into maturity with that. Um, But I actually, I have a lot of compassion on people um, not to be stereotypical, but I think I've had more conversations with, with some guys that maybe have a harder time accessing this. Um, and that can be very frustrating. So I think I just want to say that off the bat, um, that there's not something wrong with you. All of society in the pace of life in this era is working against being wholehearted and living from a place of your heart and your connection to that, to that soul. Yeah. I, so I think the first thing is it's okay. It's a process. Um, but you do have one, you do have a heart, (laughs) you know, no matter how far down it's buried, there's are a lot of different practices. I think one of them is just being in community, but then also being in silence. So you can have, I mean, I've definitely had all these different delusions about myself, like back to piano teaching. I thought I was a relatively patient person. People I would have told me that. And then you teach little kids how to read music and you feel like you're going to pull your hair out. Um, and I realized I'm not very patient. So I think that kind of stuff comes up. The more intimately you are around other people, the more in close context, your stuff's going to come up. And so then when it does, having some silence where you force yourself to just sit and see what comes up, almost like if the soul was a surface of a lake, and you're just on the waters, but you never actually see what's underneath. Sometimes just being in stillness, you could, there's different mindfulness exercises I use. I love that kind of thing. It's been really helpful with different clients to visualize and become more present to the breath and to the body and any tension there. And then shifting to what's present in your mind and then what's present in your heart then what's present in your gut. And not being afraid of what you're going to find just noticing and having a posture of curiosity rather than I need to figure out what's wrong with me and then condemn it. One last thing with that is having other friends reflect back to you. What do I, what do I say a lot? Like, is it, oh, I'm, I'm fine. Or is it, I'm angry. Or I've had different clients say, I'm, I'm annoyed. I actually hear that a lot. Like I'm annoyed. And I think annoyance is kind of a Christian, or I think sometimes women are more comfortable with They may not be comfortable with saying, I'm angry. That can be a very, it's not okay to feel that, but I can be annoyed and I'm just annoyed all the time. But that is what Mm. we call a secondary emotion. It's masking a lot of things under the surface. So sitting with that and seeing what else comes up. That's an awesome question to ask people. Ask those that have eyes on your life. What's Mm -hmm. a phrase I say a lot? Vulnerable question. I don't know that I would want to ask. <laughs> it is very vulnerable. Yeah, I haven't asked that uh, in a while. I'm aware that there's a, a category of person that's thinking, what I have is working. Don't make mm-hmm. me go to those places. Like I, mm-hmm. I understand 
I probably have things that could be addressed, but I'm keeping my head above water. I think over the last couple of months, my hunch is, is that people have really been turning to the things we use for medication, the things <laughs> we use to feel like we are keeping our heads above water, whether that is food or exercise or any other number of darker anesthetizations. We've been leaning on those a lot, probably. And that is a little bit of like the kindness of your article of just going like, hey, um, that's okay, but that's also pointing you in a direction that you do need care. Can mm. you be honest and say, mm-hmm. maybe it isn't working and maybe the mess underneath actually isn't going to sink your ship. If you think that you're managing to like not go down to actually admit, wow, there's phrases I'm saying a lot that are masking some deeper emotions. That's probably because we're afraid of what those emotions would do if we fully embraced them or fully named them. Mm-hmm. What would you say to some of those folks, like seeing it in this moment in time of, did your medication work over the last couple of months? And how are you feeling in this moment? Like, what do you say to the the 23-year-old barista who hasn't had work and mm-hmm. has felt pain, but is thinking that beer and wine pretty much worked for the last couple of months. Mm, Yeah. I love that specific example that kind of hits home. You know, I think first it would be to not have shame over those survival reactions because one, it just isn't helpful, but two, it also isn't helpful to just stay there. Um, I think some people though, when they pause, they just go right into shame. And that's why they just have to keep going, keep going, keep going because it's like, oh, dang it. I shouldn't have done that or that, you know? Um, and it just kind of has people beating themselves up. So that's a first thought of just notice that that goes into, I'm a horrible person. I'm cause that will actually keep you from healing because no one wants to feel like that, you know? Um, and it's actually, there's a deeper truth of it's not ideal, but you are in process. So the next step toward healing, toward process is I think part of it is just some education about emotions. I think there is this fear or even terror of if I let myself start to feel there's so much buildup of years and decades of stuffing, I'm never going to stop feeling and being at this kind of hundred percent level of pain or anger or, ah, you know, just this eternal scream when really the nature of emotions, there are different, I love analogies. Um, one that I got from an old counselor is it's kind of like a, a chord, um, back to music again, actually. Um, like you strike the string of guitar, piano, whatever. And at first it is intense, but then it decreases in intensity and it is more like a wave or another one that I got, um, from an old supervisor is emotions are kind of like toddlers. The more you ignore them, the more they scream and it doesn't work to just put them in a corner and be like, just, you'll you'll be fine. Shh, shh, shh. You know, you guys with with toddlers know how that would go over. It works every once in a while, I think. No, (laughs) no, it does not. Never. (laughs) It has never once worked. Not a good idea. Um, but if you come and have care for them, and I, I like that analogy too, because you know, it's, you don't want to just beat this part of yourself into oblivion. Um, You want to just have some space for it, let it breathe. And then it will decrease. I mean, 
no one physically can sustain a hundred percent of a certain emotion. It will go down. If it doesn't, there's other problems and there's hospitalization. I mean, that's kind of how it goes, you know? So I think that would be a good, just to know, okay, no feeling is final. And that's just helpful to know in the moment Mm -hmm. and it's going to decrease. One thing, I mean, I'm very... (laughs) even existential and and just paradigms about that. And I think just to be encouraged by the whole arc of this suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus and how we image that in our stories. Um, I think I know Dan Allender talks about this, but I, I tell people who are really coming to grips for the first time with a lot of pain, a lot of old pain, there needs to be some courage and some hope that this is unto deeper life and healing. And the reason it's coming up now is because it is time for that healing. It's an invitation into that deeper abundance of life. And you don't want to miss that. That's super good. I hadn't heard either of those metaphors before, and they're both very helpful. I'm intrigued by it. There are sort of, especially in the ransomed heart world, to proverbs that orient a person to their internal life, maybe more than others. And the obvious leader being 423, that guards your heart. It is the wellspring of life within you. Mm -hmm. Just this instruction that you have a heart Mm -hmm. and it is the source of all life, the Mm -hmm. epicenter of your being from which the life of God flows in you. And that's a very important piece of data, if that were true. Mm. (laughs) And then the other one is Proverbs 25, which I think is so fascinating and it gets translated many different ways, but it's the proverb that goes, for the purposes of a man are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws it out. The word purposes for the blank of a man, what is it that's deep waters? Mm. And it is plans, strategies, designs, intentions, and it has this undertone of what you are trying to get in what you are doing is a deep lake. Hmm. And it takes a person of understanding and the company of understanding to actually unpack what are your motives at any given moment. Hmm. You mentioned mindfulness earlier and these and these combined rhythms of being with people and being alone. What are some of the other uh, helpful tools that a person could use in tuning in to their own heart and simply discovering what's up there? Yeah. I love those as well. Those verses and those analogies. I think part of it is I, I see it as this type of vision that you can sharpen and I'm very visual. And so another little analogy is one of fun word proprioception. So right. Common usage, of course, it's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. words. Actually, I just stumbled across it a couple years ago when I was reading about this um, psychiatrist who worked with all these different brain cases and proprioception is this perception or awareness of the position or movement of our body. So It's basically, we don't ever think about it, but it's like this sixth sense where I right now know where my hands are, where my toes are, what, you know, what my arms are doing. And you don't think about it at all. It's very subconscious. But if you don't have it, there was this case where 
this woman lost her proprioception over a day and she literally had to look down when she was walking because she couldn't tell where her feet were. Otherwise she would just crumble to the ground. So it's this vital thing that we don't even know we have. And so this analogy kind of in the article about therapy is if we don't do that process of unpacking our soul and our heart, it's kind of like we're driving blind on the freeway, you know, with a semi truck and we might have the best of intentions. We might have a, a pure heart with it, but we could do a lot of damage to ourselves, to others. And so I think part of learning how to see is thinking of it as a, okay, what, how is my soul proprioception? How is my, am I taking responsibility for those places? Am I even aware of the jagged places in my soul? So I think having that framework behind it, that in of itself can just boost awareness. Sometimes just talking about it and having that desire to see and then praying about it and God will give you insight. I think another just practical tool is having moments. And I love your pause app for this. I've recommended it to different clients of where it sits throughout the day. You're just pausing and you're checking in with yourself. And one exercise that I do with some clients, you just, you have a blank sheet of paper and you draw this oval. And then inside I've heard it. There's different variations. I another therapist that I work with calls it, show me your brain (laughs) or, um, what's in your, what's currently in your heart, in your soul. And so you use art to draw like what is present right now. So you use some mindfulness some breathing. And then if there's any specific emotions that come up, maybe there's a memory that's pretty present. You go and and draw that out, whatever you way you want to, and just see like, what's, what's in there right now. So that is, I mean, you can do that Obviously, there's always journaling. Not everyone likes that. But using some creative techniques can also just hit a different part of your story and help you access different parts in your heart. And it might be different every single day or every week um, that you do that. This is part of why the therapist world loves the movie Inside Out so much. Oh my gosh, we love it so much. (laughs) Yes. You guys love this. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. It is like... on the one hand, it feels like it is meant for children because mm-hmm. we think of Pixar as making children's movies. Mm-hmm. But then you wonder why you're bawling like a baby. Oh my like, gosh! <laughs> just the opening scenes of um, Up, or like, like this is these aren't meant for just kids. So the Inside Out to give you language and imagery and pieces for emotion. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes, actually, what we do need are like very small building blocks to begin shaping what is otherwise the swirling mess of. I don't know head from tail and therefore I'm even more in the dark. So the, these creative things you're talking about, like that's so helpful because it can also feel like culturally we're at a time where this is more common than ever. Mm-hmm. And so you might be the one person in your world who's like, I'm, I feel like everybody else understands this language and I'm mm-hmm. the odd one out. And to get there, I have to like, I got to know the lingo. I got to, even if I don't actually know what it connects to, I want to be mindful, but I don't know what that really, is that just like paying attention and all of those things? What's a desired end state for someone entering into therapy? Like it can feel as though it's just to learn the language or it can feel as though it's to be perfect and all buttoned mm. up and have no more quote unquote issues. But what is the desired end state for a session or even 
a, a season with someone entering into this space? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to reply with the kind of truest answer, but it's not very satisfying, which is it depends because it, it really, really <laughs> oh, does. No. I mean, it, it every client, I think it's so different. Um, but a couple, couple thoughts. One, I really do think that there are seasons for that therapy, that soul work, and there's rhythms to it. I, so me personally, I've done different, like different seasons of therapy where it wasn't all just in therapy for years, but there was kind of a more intensive season. And then there was a break and I wasn't all completely buttoned up at the end of it, you know, with everything processed. But then maybe a couple of years later, it was like, oh, something else is coming up. Let me go in. So I think that is a good just starting paradigm where it's like, okay, I may not feel at the end of this that I know, I mean, I, you know, all the answers of life and all my um, family of origin issues are completely resolved. I think there really are different seasons and there's that grace for that. And it's okay to be like, oh man, I feel like I can't do anymore. And I've, we've done some good work, but I need a break where I'm not in that more intensive healing space. And that's good. And that's okay. Um, I think some, some clients, if they're coming in and there's a specific traumatic memory that is giving them flashbacks and nightmares, that's a little bit more clear cut. Um, I mean, yes and no. Right. Um, but we probably would be in therapy until those are more resolved and they have, they can go mm-hmm. through the day without these crazy, um, trauma symptoms are going into fight, flight, freeze. So that is a little bit more like, okay, with, with trauma, that's what we want to do. Um, but also with trauma, there's things that come up in that season and then maybe go along for a couple years and then something else comes up. And so it will always depend. I think one litmus test is you want to move toward inner stillness and being okay with sitting with your heart, with enjoying having a heart and moving towards um, being able to be connected with others and working through what gets in the way of that. So one of the core things of being human is we want to connect with others. We want to give and receive love. And there's all these different things that get in the way, whether there's the trauma or anxiety, depression, or this feeling like I have to self-protect as well, because that's another basic, we want to be safe. And so I think that's something to think about, like, is the work I'm doing in this office with this person also translating out into community and enabling me to move towards, not arrive, but move towards abundance of life and being able to be in intimate relationship with others and give love and receive love unfettered. That's awesome. Unfettered giving and receiving of love. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a great goal. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Sam, would you say you're there already? Oh, yeah. Definitely nailing that. (laughs) And therapists, of course. I mean, we've already established we're perfect. And so definitely arrived there. (laughs) Why would I want the goal to be something I already have? That's not a goal. That's 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 a thing I've got already. I am aware in this conversation that the way a person engages their heart will be maybe fundamentally influenced by a kind of background narrative and Mm -hmm. even ones and engaging guys that I have heard in moments of pain go kind of like this of, 
life is difficult. People can't be trusted. God is unkind. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and there's the story. Uh, and I go, wow, in that story, of course you would cover and hide the tender parts of your own life. Mm. Fortunately, that's not true. But what are some of the key pieces of the background story that need to be in place for a person to begin engaging their heart? Yeah, I think a a big thing is just realizing that we all have all of our different ages inside of us. It's kind of a weird thought, but that comes up again and again in, in my sessions and in my own personal journey and even in dear friends and more and more, um, the conversation shifts to how young are you feeling right now? What part of Mm -hmm. yourself, like that voice, that phrase, huh? I wonder, I wonder if there's a memory attached to that as you're feeling that emotion and you let your mind think back to a previous time, where does that feel familiar to you? And that often is a really pivotal and exciting for me as a therapist pivotal moment for clients being like, oh, wow, this is connected to when I was five or seven or, you know, and I also talk, I have an attachment framework lens. Really, it's how you get and receive love, how you are attached to other people. And that is formed when you're really young. So I I think it's really important. And that's partly why we do some of those either art therapy techniques or there's some reparenting techniques where you go into an old memory and you connect first with that child whose needs were not being met, who maybe they were shamed or there's some trauma there. And sometimes people even with a non-dominant hand, I encourage them to do use a crayon or marker, whatever, make it super messy and write out what they were feeling or write out that memory. And if they're believers, you know, invite the Holy Spirit into this um, and the Father's viewpoint, but then kind of write what they needed when they were in that moment as a, as a kid um, with the dominant hand. And it's, it's this moment of being comforted and going way back. But you have to connect with that child first. This was a mind blower for me, even though as we were growing up, we saw a little bit of this, but mm. to have in a conversation with Dan Allender, who's been mentioned, him named that different neural networks hold different concepts of self and yeah. on every level of the body, mm-hmm. we discover that our hearts are stretched out across time. Mm. And Sam, you wrote about this in terms of mm-hmm. there are younger places in your heart and you need to make a decision about how you will treat them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, in in marriage counseling, or but also in an individual and trauma counseling, it can even help to take a picture of when you were three, four, or whatever age where a lot of stuff happened, and you stick that on the fridge. And whenever you feel like I just want to beat myself up, or I'm so frustrated at the patterns of thinking that started then that are crippling me now. But having compassion, I think seeing yourself is huge for that. And then also realizing, okay, there, there was a point in time when this way of thinking that is not helping me right now, this way of thinking was actually very, I needed it for, to survive and to 
let that kindness and compassion come for that kid who was doing the best they could. Yeah, this is a whole category for me that I think at first I was a little hesitant with because it felt like, okay, here's a new therapy model that's, it feels like it can be easily dismissed. Mm. Um, And yet the more I've learned and the more I've even experienced the fruit of it, like the the heart is mercy. Like what it mm-hmm. actually, if you let yourself sit with it, you put that picture on the fridge, um, what you feel towards that younger you is really revealing. Like I remember almost every time we show clips of the movie, The Kid at some of our events mm-hmm. where the, the young, like eight-year-old self is back and the four-year-old self doesn't like him very much. But when at the end of the movie, they meet like the 60-something-year-old self, his tenderness towards the youngest version. Like he just looks at him and mm. says, it was so good to see you again. Like I'm, I almost am bawling every time at that tenderness and mercy towards younger places that when we're really, really close to them and we feel like they're getting us into a lot of trouble or making us feel vulnerable, we don't feel really kind. Mm. But the further away you get, actually you begin to see like the beauty and goodness of that part of you. It gets a little bit easier and so like that, that for me was the key that unlocked this understanding from being just like, okay, here's like a new model of psychology. Here's a new, like, I don't know how I feel about all of these things to so go like, oh, the fruit of it actually is really, really good. And the article I wrote for volume four is just about a meal, a place. It was about eating Chinese food, longing for actually a particular dish. And I was like, I don't actually want that. Like that doesn't make me feel good. What am I, why do I want Chinese food in the middle of Colorado? Like I've had it. (laughs) I know what it should taste like. That's not it. And then what came was actually beneath that, a longing for that time and what that time represented, what that age represented again of things that were lost, not being lost forever, a sense Mm -hmm. of not needing to be the one to carry my whole world I get all of these vulnerable things getting stirred up. And I was like, oh, that's what this is about? Okay. I can have a little bit more kindness towards you. Like as soon as I told myself that I was going to go get this meal, I would just find myself weeping. And it was like a, oh, I did not know this grief was here. I didn't know that uh, relief would come. It's such a helpful example, <laughs> or it's a very good illustration where, you know, you go to, into this more in the article But it began with discovering, noticing that when you woke up in the morning Mm -hmm. and this was in, you know, around the holiday season, you felt sad in a way you couldn't identify. Mm. And by paying attention to your heart over time, which just meant like getting some solitude and asking the question, why am I sad? Mm. And letting... Uh, over several days, this thing come up of, oh, I am longing for an Eden lost. Mm. And it would be tempting at that moment to just dismiss it and go, yeah, that's life. Versus going, no, heart, you are built for things to be restored to you. And so I'm going to do the work of finding a bad Chinese restaurant, very much like the one that we went to when we were little. And and bad is, you know, relative, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <They're> pretty bad. 
It was exactly what was needed. And then I'm going to invite a couple trusted witnesses to go because otherwise mm-hmm. it would be if I'm going to care for my heart, I'm going to do it in total isolation and keep this private. But that would be a victory for shame. Mm-hmm. And going, no, there are a couple of people who I don't mind being attentive to my story and they're going to come and we're going to go do this thing as actually a pretty simple act of care, but actually kind of freed your heart to live the rest of that particular Christmas season. I know that for many people, there is an inflection point in the life of their heart Mm -hmm. that marks the beginning of their journey. But there are usually reasons we finally decide to pay attention to the life of our own heart and commit to what can be Mm. the difficult process of stewarding such a remarkable thing, especially engaging your history. I'm just curious for you, what was the thing or some of the things that allowed you to begin unpacking your own heart? Yeah, I think it was really, it was God's desire and his leadership and shepherding. I (laughs) would not have gone to certain paths in my own healing journey that yield an incredible abundance of life and really from death to life, but had some painful parts along the process. I would not have done that just for my own, like, I want to be self-actualized, you know? It was really in my times with God, Him leading me again and again and just whispering, I I care about your heart. And during this one particular time a couple years ago, or quite a few years ago now, actually, I felt like He gave me this verse, Psalm 51, 6, um, and it says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And that first just blew my mind that he actually cared about these things that were kind of hidden in different layers of, of childhood, you know, young Stacia that needed healing. And for me, it would be so easy to be like, Lord, I'm decades later, you know, why, why do I need to dig up this painful thing in order to heal from it? But my faith and witnessing his desire for my healing and the truth in the end was parts. Really, it was, it was a rescue. I mean, I'm picturing, we, we talked about some Disney movies with your kids, like the prince slashing through all these different forests, having all this, you know, quote unquote trouble to get to these inner places of my heart and saying, no, this is worth, there's treasure here. I created this. I desire healing for you. Um, and that's really what saw me through my process. Like in my work, I hold on to God's desire and his vision for people and the hope that he's doing a good thing through the, that process. It is so huge. Mm. Uh, you know, for me, one of my longstanding objections to unpacking the life of my own heart is how unsafe the world is mm-hmm. as an environment, just going, this isn't Eden and Christ has not returned. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'll unpack something in my heart and then experience cruelty from a person or mm-hmm. I'll unpack something in my heart and then something really, there will be some difficult situation that'll wound it again. Mm-hmm. And, the you know, the fascinating thing in Jesus's pursuit of that particular place and, and slowly going after it is bringing... <laughs> The understanding of you are safe 
because I actually cover you. Jesus speaking to me Mm -hmm. and going like that. I am not ashamed of your heart and I do protect you Mm -hmm. so that even if the world were full of scorn and harm, there would still be a safe place under the covering of Jesus's good, strong heart. And it was actually transformative and Mm. continues to be to go, oh, uh, because you get better at stewarding the life of your heart and it is always challenging. Mm -hmm. So for me, there's this regular practice of rediscovering and remembering this is possible because the father is extremely kind. Yes. This is possible because he's also extremely protective. And this is possible because Jesus really does cover. Yes. That's so good. Stacia, thank you so much for jumping in with us today. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of telehealth video sessions. And so just so that people know if they do need support, I'm having new clients really every week because this is a more stressful time and things are coming up. And so I would just want them to know that therapy is still an option. Obviously, it's not the only option. God is using different things in different seasons to heal hearts all the time. But if that feels like it is in season, even in the pandemic times, you can do online therapy just even going online psychology today, asking around for people who have been to therapy and had a good experience um, just as a starting place. 